Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to the premiere episode of the Acoustic Music Talk podcast. I'm your host, Brad Apple, and I'm delighted to be here with you and share interviews and talks with some of the musicians that uh, we've all looked up to for many years now. And, you know, if you're like me, uh, when I was growing up and still today, I read everything I could get my hands on about my favorite musicians, bands, and et cetera. And oftentimes it left me wanting more. Uh, why didn't the interviewer ask some deeper questions? Why didn't he ask about their instruments, their uh, techniques when they went into the recording studios? Uh, what makes them tick? Who do they listen to? Who did they listen to growing up? Questions like that. And that's what I wanted to get into some on this show uh, to dig a little deeper and highlight some of these great musicians in the acoustic music world. I am a third-generation musician. Music was always in my life. It was on my parents' sides of the family, both sides. And uh, I started playing music when I was just a young kid and played in uh, our family band with my brother and dad and mom. And I've also played in other bands and continue to play to this day. And so this was just a natural extension of my interest in music and to be able to bring uh, these interviews to you. So I'm really looking forward to doing this. And the first person on the show today uh, couldn't be more fitting uh, because I've listened to him ever since I was a kid, and he's been a big influence. So let's get into the interview. So on the show with us today is a man who's given us a lot of great music through the years. He's played with a wide variety of people, such as the Bluegrass Cardinals, Heights of Grass, Virginia Squires, Tony Rice Unit, and currently he's with the Seldom Scene. And we're talking about Mr. Ronnie Simpkins. Ronnie, welcome to the show. Uh, well, thank you, Brad. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be on your show, and I want to thank you for having me, and uh, I appreciate all you do and continue to do for this music, and uh, just keep up the good work. Well, likewise, Ronnie, I appreciate it. Like I've expressed, you and your brother Ricky and uh, the Squires and, of course, all the bands you've been in has been great influences on me through the years. So, likewise, I appreciate all the hard work you've done all these years and given us the great music you've given us. Oh, well, I certainly do appreciate it, and thank you uh, for your kind kindness. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I have really feel blessed to be in this music and growing up with it and having parents that uh, kind of passed it down and uh, being around the right influences and uh, being at the right place at the right time. So, again, I feel very blessed and just love this music and, I don't know, everyone in it and the folks I've met and and continue to meet. You mentioned in your parents there, uh, that's one of my questions. I was wanting to see if you could talk to us about your early days and when you started playing the bass and about your family. I know I've read before you had a family band with your mom and dad and Ricky, I guess. Could you tell us some about those days? Right. Um, yeah, that's uh, uh, my folks uh, played music. Uh, actually, my dad's family, there's uh, several in his family. He comes from a large, I think there were 10 total in his family. Wow. And his dad played and he had brothers that played banjo, fiddle, and uh, whenever they started raising a family, this was back home in the uh, southwestern part of Virginia, 
around Christiansburg, Radford area. Uh, they started raising a family, and then uh, they didn't have the time to do the music that they uh, enjoyed playing. So that was put on the back burner until my older brother, Ricky, who at the age of six showed an interest in the fiddle. And he would get up, and at that time there was a uh, TV program uh, called Top of the Morning. Yeah. And that featured... Uh, as you know, Don Reno and Red Smiley. Right. And he would get up and uh, watch that program that came on at 6 a.m., and he would get two pieces of kindling wood <laughs> and act like he was playing the fiddle. Yeah. <laughs> so my folks talked, and they said, you know, we should get him a fiddle for Christmas. And they did, and one thing led to another, and he got involved in music and got them back involved in, in playing. My mom played guitar, my dad played uh, old-time banjo and fiddle, and after he started playing, I came along, and being so little, the mandolin was about the only thing that I could hold, so we started playing, uh, like going up Sunday uh, get-togethers at my grandparents' place in Snowsville, Virginia, and, um, and then after my dad passed away, I was six at the time, we continued to play, and then I graduated, as I got older, to the acoustic bass uh, and electric bass also. And then my younger sister, Tammy, she developed an interest in music, so she took up with the mandolin, and that's when we started playing around fiddler's conventions. And uh, my brother even sat in or played one, one tune with Lester Flat and Earl's Grugs when they came through in Christiansburg. So that's kind of how it all got all got started, and as we grew older, we started playing with uh, locals like Barry Collins, uh, and then we went on to Upland Express. Uh, later, Ken Farmer was in that band, and uh, Tanya Gibson, Simone's. Um, and then we traveled out further, going out you know, to Tennessee, North Carolina. And then that led to the uh, Bluegrass Cardinals. That was in 1980. And uh, just, uh, you know, like I said, being at the right place at the right time, I was able to uh, network and meet different people like Claire Lynch, um, uh, Tony Rice. And then currently, uh, I started with the seldom scene of uh, New Year's Eve 95, along with Dudley Connell and Fred Travers. And uh, it's... Uh, it's just like uh, I don't know where the time has gone, but it's been fun. Yeah, you bet. Well, you mentioned the Bluegrass Cardinals. I guess that was your first experience with a national touring band, probably correct. Hey, that would that would be accurate. Uh, like I said, that was in 1980, and uh, I had um, I don't know I had a day job and wasn't really playing music uh, as I wanted to, but there was a guy. Uh, J.C. Poff, who he lived in Christiansburg, still does, and had a music store, and he was pretty well connected. Anyway, he had got a message or he had talked with uh, David Parmley, uh, asking, you know, if there were any bass players he would recommend. And he thought of me, and he called me up, and uh, I was real excited and uh, tried to get ready for this road trip that I met them uh off an exit on, <laughs> in Christiansburg, and the first uh, weekend was up in Canada. 
and uh, it was just for a fill-in for like a weekend or two, and um, I guess it worked out pretty well. It ended up being about a year and a half or so that uh, I traveled with them, and like you said, that that was the first probably national platform that I'd been on or exposed to, and, uh, you know, they had the uh, three-piece outfits and traveled in the bus, and uh, yeah, I was I was real excited, and and it was really big for me, and uh, you know, an honor yeah. to to be able to play with uh, Dave and Don, and also to be involved in one of the records. I think for Rainbow's Touchdown, it yeah. was middle of eighty or eighty one. So, uh-huh. um, I, I yeah. think I've read before where you said your mother dreaded or she hated that phone call you got. I guess she was dreading <laughs> you getting into the touring life of a musician, right? <laughs> Yeah, uh, she wasn't wasn't happy at all with JC after that phone call. But, <laughs> you know, I, you got to do what you got to do sometimes, and, and yeah. uh, I think probably later on she would she was happy that I was able to get that experience, although she would never say it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you, you touched on something a minute ago. Besides being a great acoustic bass player, a lot of people today that's you know just seen you in recent years, they may not know that you're also an outstanding electric bass player could you tell us some about uh, your electric bass playing and maybe who some of your influences were in that area oh well i i appreciate it again brad uh, for the comments uh well starting out uh, I, I was around maybe 12 and uh my my mom said yeah well you know she agreed to give me a bass and at that time you know i thought you know i'd been around acoustic and I didn't know which way I wanted to go, but I did have both. And uh, even when I played the electric bass, I would end up taking it, standing it up, and playing it like an acoustic. But uh, I would say uh, playing with the Cardinals—that was uh, that was electric, all electric. Uh, and then you know later on playing with the uh, Virginia Squires—that was electric bass all throughout that uh, those five or six years. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I just growing up. Uh, I mean, there, there's all kinds of good players, and uh, I always liked Steve Bryant's playing. I always thought he really oh, yeah. uh, pushed the envelope, you know. And and um, and we would work a lot back in the days when I was with the, the Bluegrass Cardinals, a lot with J.D. Crow in the New South. And at that time, uh, we crossed paths quite a bit. And Steve Bryant wasn't that bad. Yeah. And uh, just a phenomenal, still is a phenomenal bassist. And, you bet. Uh, uh, yeah, as you know. Yeah. yeah. And I read before, it's in an old Bluegrass Unlimited article, too, you'd mentioned Jocko Pastorius was an influence also. Yeah, he, well, he's another great player. I mean, uh, um, I could never, ever even dream on um, becoming a bassist on that level, but... Uh, yeah, he opened up a lot of doors. Yeah. And, uh, well, you know, I oh can gosh. hear some of his influences in, uh, like, say, on the Virginia Squires' "War Between the Hearts." That cut some of your play, oh. some of your licks on that. I can hear some of his influence coming through you there. Oh well, I, I appreciate it. I, I maybe I didn't realize that, but I guess if you listen to something, it's it's ingrained and yeah. Uh, you know, well, I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, that. Yeah. That was a that was an interesting cut. I think on that one, I think I dubbed acoustic as well and did some slides 
uh, okay. on that track. Yeah. Yeah. When did you start taking some uh, bass breaks on stuff like uh, we're still kind of talking about electric here, like Turkey and the Straw? I know you played that like a full-on break on that song. Yeah. You know what? Uh, maybe back uh, in the uh, early 80s when we were getting the band started, we were just, uh, we were, well, we were in, heavily influenced with New Grass Revival. And at the time, they had several jams that featured, uh, you know, like John Cowan doing some lead stuff on the bass. I remember they used to jam out on Doing My Time, and he had a section there. I don't know if you ever have heard it, but uh, he would do lines on the bass and uh, maybe got some ideas from that as well. But uh, uh-huh. I don't know. We were just trying to maybe push the envelope some back then, uh, featuring, you know, every instrument in the band. And uh, right. uh, I can't even recall who picked uh, Turkey and the Straw, but I remember my brother singing it, and that's not a song that, you don't hear too many folks singing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you don't. That's really just uh, most people just play it. Yeah, that was cool to hear it sung also. Well, this is a yeah. question I ask you a lot, you know, when I see you in person. And I was wondering if you could tell us some about some of the bases you own, your acoustic and electric. Oh, well, uh, the first bass that I had was a, a Fender Jazz. That's what I had when I was with the Cardinals. Unfortunately, I don't have that. Uh, and then I've got a, a couple of more electric basses. Uh, one is a music man that I really like a lot. And uh, that was always Sammy Sheeler's favorite electric bass. Uh, uh-huh. it, it could use a little work, but it, it's been a while since I played it. And then uh, being, you know, that I do love the acoustic bass so much, I did a tour with Larry Rice in Japan. And, of course, I didn't fly with acoustic. I had electric, but... I fell in love with a fretless over there. It's called Bass Maniac, made by Tune, T-U-N-E. And I, I purchased that bass while I was over there, and, and I ended up playing that towards the end of the Squire stays. Yeah. And, um, and that was a fretless with, bass, uh, right? A fretless, yes, correct. Yeah. And uh, I would travel with, uh, back when I carried an amp, a GK. They were small, but uh, they were very... Uh, it was a strong app, and I still have that. But uh, uh, and then when I started playing with Tony, I still have it. It's a uh, it's a ply bass. It's an American standard that uh, I kind of regret it now, but it added a lot of character. I had Arthur Connor, who's a well known violin maker back home in Floyd, Virginia. He uh, cut off the the original scroll on that bass, and he would. Now his trademark, he would put Rams heads on his violins, five strings, whatnot. And, oh yeah, uh, I had him. I had him carve a Rams head in it, so it's 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 that it, that's the headstock of that bass, and that's like a 1958 model. And uh, probably my well, my uh, main bass. It's it's a carved top around 20, 1920 or 1930 Jusic uh, bass that I travel with whenever I'm driving. And then uh, we do quite a bit of flying with the scene. So uh, my latest thing that I've had now for five-plus years is the Chadwick folding base. Okay. And it has about the same setup neck-wise as my Juzic, and I use the same strings. And uh, it's amazing, you know, to fold up like it does and come apart that 
it yeah. sounds as good as it does. Right. And, uh, Speaking of strings. I always know what I'm going to get when I'm once I, you know, land. You bet. Uh, and knock on wood. <laughs> yeah. I've just had a few minor things, like with the case, um, you know, latches or whatnot, but the bass has always been intact. And yeah. I use a DPA microphone that I that I mount once I set the bass up okay. and, uh, and run through a grace unit. Uh, it's called Felix. It's like a small preamp. And also my Juzic, I run through that as well, where I can split two signals and, and send to the house. Yeah, and, okay. Uh, uh, and the Daryl strings, I, I swear by them. And, right. Uh, you know, they're steel strings. The, the Helicor? Yes, uh-huh, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, those are great yeah. strings. Well, yes, um, they are. You uh, talked about the Bluegrass Cardinals, and then that leads into the Heights of Grass, I guess, was your next band. Is that right? Uh, let's see. Let me think here for a second. I know I'm going back Actually, in time you know, a ways. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that would be accurate because after the Cardinals, uh, I moved up northern Virginia area, and I was probably out of music for a year or so. And that's when the Huts of Grass, they went through some changes. So uh, my brother was in that band along with Sammy Sheeler, and so they, they were looking for uh, uh, bass and a mandolin tenor singer. So... I got together with them along with Mark Newton, so we uh, went down to Richmond. That's where the band was based out of. And so, yeah, no, you're right. That uh, I had to think about that for a minute. It's, yeah. it's only been 30-some years, I guess. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, and so, so the Heights yeah. of Grass basically was the Virginia Squires after, uh, minus Don Grubb, after Don Grubb left, then the four of you went on, you and Ricky, uh, Mark Newton and Sammy Sheeler and became the Virginia Squires. Is that right? That's correct. Uh, yeah, I, I don't even know. It, it was a brief time that I worked with Donnie Grubbin. You know, they were they were a nationally known band. Uh, they had several uh, records out. And uh, so that, I, I don't know, a year or so, and then Donnie uh, got out of the music, and then so uh, we decided to go on, and then... Uh, Al Hopper was a promoter booking agent for the Heights of Grass. So he he expressed an interest in backing us. And so one thing led to another. And uh, he, he had some really good ideas. And one of them, uh, at, the, at the time, we didn't think so, but it was dressing up in uh, tuxedos. Yeah. And not too many bands did that back in, back in that day. I don't know, still maybe. But it kind of set us apart in a way. And... Uh, I don't know. We first couple of records we did uh, were produced by Sonny Osborne, yeah. and uh, yeah, we we had a good time, and uh, we traveled a lot for little to no money back then. And of course, you you, you know you had to do that to establish yourself, at least you know try to get your name out. Right. Uh, but we were able to uh, self produce the first record, and then. Uh, after that, we were, I don't, we did three on Rebel, I guess. I can't remember. But, uh, Maybe That four. was a fun band. Yeah, it yeah. sure was. Yeah, you say in the tuxedos, I remember uh, the first, the self-produced record, Bluegrass with a Touch of Class, you guys were all in tuxedos on the, the front of that. Uh, that's correct. Yeah, it was a black and white cover. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, 
Yeah, that was cool. uh, (laughs) I I may still have that tuxedo somewhere. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Oh, gosh. When you Uh, think about the Squires and all the records you guys made, if you had to pick one record, what think about what do you think would be your maybe your favorite record of all all five of them oh gosh man kind of hard to decipher that is a good question i you know what maybe maybe the first one because it was so different and it was yeah it had a lot of i I thought it had a lot of good material on it Mm -hmm. uh yeah, I was uh, thinking because, how the freewheeling yeah. starts out and just grabs you by force right off the bat there. <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, like Midnight Fire, song that Steve Warner did, that was always uh, like a crowd pleaser, and that was fun fun to play. Yeah. I don't know. I, yeah, that's a good question. Uh, you got me on that one. I, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, that was a great record. And also, of the Rebel records... I guess one of my favorites is well, they're all favorites, but I think "Hard Times and Heartaches" was different, and it you know you guys were so polished on a lot of the things you did on that one. I'm thinking like "War Between the Hearts" and "Oh Mama, Please Don't Cry," which was beautiful with the twin mandolins and twin fiddles and uh, all the singing and everything. I thought that was a really great record, as they all were. Oh, I appreciate it, Brad. Uh, It's kind of you to say, uh, yeah, that. that one did have some good material on it as well, and I think that was the one the cover was hand painted, if not if I'm not mistaken. I think so, yeah. Uh, uh, but uh, yeah, um, uh, again, thank you for your comments. I appreciate it. Well, so you had a pretty good run with the Squires there for about five years or so, and after the Squires disbanded, um, about how long was it until you? joined up with uh, Tony Rice unit? Uh, I would say it was maybe a couple of years, I guess, uh, after the Squires. I was kind of, uh, we were, my wife and I were busy raising the family. We have two daughters. Well, they're grown now, but uh, I was doing some uh, uh, side jobs in addition to, to the music. And uh, I want to say maybe two or three years uh was when a couple of years later that Mark Schatz um, left the unit and uh, I, I got a call from Tony and I sit in with them. It was a job up in Maryland uh, for a guy who would put on private parties. Even the Squires worked for him. His name was David Crane. I haven't seen him in years, but uh, that was the first job that I worked with Tony. And, uh, of course, I was a little on the nervous side, to say the least, but uh, yeah. I remember going into a motor home, and uh, we ran over about four tunes, and Tony said, yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that was it, so, uh, okay. <laughs> yeah. I heard he's pretty infamous for, for not wanting to rehearse things, just kind of fly by the seat of the pants, and when you get the nod, you just go with it, right? Yeah, yeah, have your stuff together and be ready. Yeah, that was pretty much it. I, I, I'm, uh, you just now made me think of something. I, I don't think I ever we ever got together and rehearsed the whole time I was with Tony. Even uh, the last record that he did uh, with the unit, um, that was pretty much just put together in the studio. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the unit, the measure, the all instrumental. 
right. recording. Uh-huh. And, uh, and I'll have to admit that same thing with the scene. Uh, uh, we, the last record that we just did, we got together uh, maybe a couple of days to learn new stuff. Uh, right. Uh, before we went into the studio, but uh, it's not that we're haughty or anything. It's just you know, like even back in the days with Tony, everybody's spread out, and right. you know, it's just hard to get people together. And um, I think things probably turn out better that way uh, sometimes. Anyway, instead of overthinking something or overproducing oh. it, and just uh, oh, I know, I I agree with that uh, totally. You know, sometimes. Things just happen, you know, if you don't put too much thought in it. And then, uh, yeah, that, I think it happened on uh, a lot of the, you know, the measure as well as the last couple of records, I guess, that we did. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, so the Tony Rice unit kind of uh, ended there as far as Tony singing and everything. And, Around 1995, things really changed for the seldom scene. I know they had lost their guitar player, bass player, and dobro player. So, could you kind of yeah. tell us how you came to get with the scene that you're with, the seldom scene that you're with now? Well, um, actually, uh, even going back uh, before I got a call from John Duffy, that we, you know, when we all got together, uh, he had cut communicated with, uh, I think, Dudley and Fred. But even prior to that, I had auditioned for the Selma scene before T. Michael joined the band. Um, I was still with the Squires and got a call from Blue Reed asking if I knew of any bass players. They were looking, you know, for a bass player with the scene. And at the time, I didn't know. I mean, I said, well, I'll, I'll keep an open ear. Well, after thinking about it and my wife urging me, um, I called Lou back and, uh, I was able to meet at the Birchmere and Doug Campbell was there later in the day. And I guess he was as well, but anyway, uh, this was done at the Birchmere prior to the new one now. And I remember doing about five songs that they told me, you know, that we would do. And, uh, it felt good, but I think it was, um, I was not going into a depth. I think it was pretty determined that T. Michael would, which he, which he did, and played with the, the scene for a long time. But anyway, and then that brought up to the uh, audition at John Duffy's house, and um, that would have been, I guess, in '95, early summer, maybe spring. And John was happy with uh, the five or six songs that we did at his house, and. Uh, and it was funny. Uh, after that, we'd get we'd each get a call from John Duffy uh, saying, "Well, you want to get together Wednesday?" Blah blah blah. And of course, we did. And, uh, and Ben always uh, told us that John never rehearsed; he hated it. So that was always a fun fun time to go into John Duffy's house on on a Wednesday evening to rehearse. And yeah, uh, I just wish it would have lasted longer. It was a year that we got to work with John, but, uh, yeah, yeah, that's kind of how that came about. So, all right. Well, um, you've been with a seldom scene now, probably longer than, than any band you've, uh, worked with. What's it like to stay with the same group of guys for such a, a long length of time? 
Does that have any benefits you can think of, like as far as being in a, a band with the same members for a long time? Yeah, uh, definitely. Um, what I, I'd have to say, you know, the the band was always built uh, not as a as a uh, sole means to support yourselves. In other words, you know, it was like a side thing. Early on, they all had uh, professional day jobs, as you know. Yeah, Starling being a doctor and being a mathematician and so on and so forth. So that, in alone, uh, takes a lot of the pressure off, you know. Uh, whereas if, if the means aren't there money-wise, then you're not forced into taking it or doing long extended tours. Uh, that has benefits. The fact that we um, kind of are like a band of brothers, you know. We, can, we think alike. Yeah. Uh, when it comes to material, uh, you know, like modes of transportation, you know, we don't have a, never had a bus, you know, so everyone just kind of, you know, does their own thing as far as getting to a job. Right. And, and not, and once you see each other, once you get to a place, you know, it's, it's genuine, genuine, um, what you see on stage, you know, you say, Hey, you know, you're glad to see the other person, you know. Right. And it's kind of infectious with the crowd, I think. Right. Um, it's not like being in a cramped in a bus for weeks or months on end <laughs> with the same guys yeah, doing it that way. Exactly. You know, that's led up to uh, that's led to breakup with the groups <laughs> yeah. in the past, and no doubt. So yeah. yeah, you don't have that, and and it gives you freedom, you know, and uh, to do what you want to, however you want to get to the job, whether you want to drive, fly, whatever. You know, that's your choice. Right. And, uh, yeah, and the other thing is, you know, the original band, uh, those guys are just, I just told them on such a pedestal. Tom Gray, John Starling, Mike Aldridge, all of them, Ben Eldridge, what they did, you know, at that place in time, you know, there was no one else out there doing that. Sure. And yeah. they turned turned so many heads and, and directions with this music. So I... You know, I, how could you be in a better brand than the seldom seen, in my opinion? Right. And, um, you and the fact that I've been there, you know, 25 years, it's, it's mind-boggling. Yeah. Um, and still have the same personnel, you know, with the exception, exception of Ron Stewart here uh, the last two, almost three years now. Right. Uh, the same core of musicians. Uh, you bet. I think just speaks volumes. Not to mention the material that the band's had over the years, which is a problem in some ways, but it's a good problem, you know. Yeah, you got a you big know, pool to you choose know, what do you from. Do? Yeah, yeah, and exactly. Speaking of projects, the Seldom Scene has a, a new project out called Changes. Could you kind of tell us about the concept behind that recording? Sure. That um, we were asked uh, by Kent Irwin, who, who's uh, original. Um, starter of Rounder Records, and he still has some uh, influence with the label, but he approached us about doing a record with them and being a concept record, and that was going back to the 60s, early 70s, singer-songwriter material, and uh, he gave us probably, I don't know, 80 songs, and we had to weed through them and figure out 15, 18 songs to record, and um, you know, stuff that uh, you'd heard done before, but um, this was more leaning towards the way the songwriter wrote the song. 
So, yeah, that was late, uh, our last recording, and that was released in uh, June of last year. Yeah. And, uh, and it's doing well. I noticed yeah. the latest Bluegrass Unlimited, it keeps climbing the charts there. I can't remember, but I remember uh-huh. the, the everybody's talking is, is still climbing up the charts, and then the, the record itself is also climbing up the, the charts there, too. So congratulations oh, on that. Great record. Oh, well, thank you. I didn't realize that. That's, that's encouraging. Well, thank you so much, Brad. Uh, yeah, yeah it, it was fun. Uh, uh, it was fun to cut, and uh, yeah, who knows, maybe... Uh, Maybe we can get around to doing another one before another decade goes by. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, speaking of recording, I was, I was wanting to ask you about when you record. Do you have any favorite microphones or setups that you use on uh, recording the bass that you maybe you uh, recommend or to the engineer, or do you just go with what they want to do, or what do you like in the studio? Um. Well, usually. Uh, um, well, that's another thing. I've been uh, fortunate enough to to be in situations with really top notch engineers like uh, like Billy Wolf recording with Tony. He was always partial to uh, Neumanns, which uh-huh. I am as well. Yeah, you know German microphones, Austria U eighty sevens. Usually, a pair of those uh, where you have one positioned up towards the fingerboard. I I love the sound of the fingerboard. Oh yeah, um, you know it really cuts through the notes, mm-hmm. and you have a percussive sound too, which a lot of people don't realize. If you just mic in front of the uh, f hole, you kind of miss that. But uh, yeah. I like that microphone around the fingerboard, and then one towards you know out away from the treble side of the bass, uh-huh. and blend the two. So yeah, I'm I, like you. I yeah. like that string sound of the the fingerboard too. It gives kind of a jazz tone that's really awesome oh. like you say oh yeah yeah and when you blend the two with the right combination uh yeah you can't go wrong with that uh yeah i know uh, todd phillips always gets a great tone and uh you can really hear the the fingerboard in his playing yeah um, speaking of recording i had this question down to ask you do you have a preference over of between digital recording versus analog? I know you've done both through the years, like old yeah. real, reel-to-reel tape recorders to the, now right. the digital technology. Yeah. I just, I, you know what, Brad? It's been so long since I've been in studio with two-inch tape. That is that is a big, fat sound that uh, I miss. But then again, on the other hand, you know, digital is so precise. Yeah. Uh, it's quick. Uh, and, yeah, that's... That's all I've been around here the last few years, you know, studio digital. And I would just like to express, folks, if you haven't got the Seldom Scenes new CD titled Changes, you really need to because it is a great record. I've had it since it came out, and uh, it has some wonderful material on it. Great playing, great singing, as you would expect. So go get you a copy today. Unfortunately, we're almost out of time here, Ronnie, but... uh, I sure want to thank you for being on the show today and thank you for all the great music you've given us through the years and continue to give us. And um, we appreciate it so much. It's an honor again to be on your program. Thanks again. Folks, one more thing I'd like to mention is if you would like to keep up with where Ronnie and the Seldom Scene will be playing, 
please go to their website, seldomseen.com, and seen is spelled S-C-E-N-E, seldomseen.com. And if you haven't caught one of their shows yet, you owe it to yourself to do so because I'm telling you, I've seen them a number of times now, and it's always great. I've never been disappointed. So seldomseen.com. That's it for this show. We would like to thank you for tuning in and listening to our podcast. Join us again next time as we delve deeper into acoustic music and the great musicians who create it for us. I'm your host, Brad Apple. We'll see you next time.